Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, uh, as Pastor Janice mentioned, we are on week two of our Lenten series, Jesus is Better. Jesus is better, and this series will lead up to Easter Sunday, come a few weeks' uh, time. And through this series, we'll be looking at the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, who is our Lord and Savior, but he's also our teacher. Jesus instructs us into the way of life, into how we ought to live, breathe, how we ought to interact with our surroundings, how we ought to represent him in our world. And if you read the Gospels, you would notice that Jesus in his teachings doesn't, more often than not, doesn't really end it with an instruction or a command or like, here are three points in a sermon that will all rhyme. Jesus doesn't really do all that uh, too much. He often ends his teachings with a statement on reality, with how with a statement on how the world works, how life ought to be. For example, Jesus would say, uh, the, 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 whoa, my gosh, tripping up my words. Jesus would, would say, the last shall be first. He would say, it's better to give than to receive. He would say, uh, he who lives by the sword shall die by it. These are statements on reality. And discipleship, I'd like to put it to you in essence, is exchanging our views on reality our worldly scripts on success, on what a good life is in exchange for Jesus' perspectives, Jesus' views on reality. And Jesus being the masterful teacher that he is in the Gospels, we see him often contrast, contrasting the way of the world, what the world deems as good, beautiful and true with the way of his kingdom. And we're often placed in that, that, that kind of crossroads as followers of Jesus to choose to pick between the way of the world, what culture deems as right, beautiful, true, and good, as opposed to the way of Jesus, his call to self-denial. And, you know, in the next three weeks, you'll be doing, in some sense, a series within a series. This talk is about Jesus is better, how he's the most compelling, how he's the most beautiful, and how his way is the most true. And, you know, in Jesus' teachings, we see these three themes emerging more than any other themes are in his teachings. And over the next three weeks, we'll be touching on the subjects of money, sex, and power. Money, sex, and power. Now, folks, money, sex, and power are the arenas where the Lordship of Jesus is either demonstrated or revolted against. Money, sex, and power. When a person said Jesus is Lord in the first century, he was essentially doing two things. He was saying that, Jesus, I acknowledge you as Lord, as Savior, as Yahweh, as God. But at the same time, he was making this profession that all other gods in Rome and in culture are not gods, are not gods in my life. They have no authority, only Yahweh is Lord. So for me to say Jesus is Lord, it meant that uh, Mammon, the God of wealth, is not Lord. It meant that Kratos, the God of power and war, is not God. It meant that Aphrodite, the God of lust, is not God. Jesus is God. But today in kind of contemporary modern Christianity, Jesus is often God of a Sunday. Mammon is often God of our work. Kratos is God at home. And Aphrodite is God of the of you know late night on the internet. <laughs> Richard Foster says this about money, sex, and power. He says this: no issues touch us more profoundly or universally 
Isn't it true? No topics cause more controversy. No human realities have greater power to bless or curse. No three things have been more sought after or are more in need of a Christian response. Now, tragically, folks, the church has absorbed much of our surrounding culture, and we have our views, perspectives, goals, longings, ambitions, and life shaped by that of the world. And Jesus is calling us as his disciples to affirm that, hey, my way is better, his way is better, in contrast to the way of the world. And this is the extraordinary claim that we're making as followers of Jesus. On Easter Sunday, we proclaim that Jesus defeated death, hell, and the grave, that Jesus once lived, died, and is now risen forevermore and seated at the right hand of the Father. It's an extraordinary claim. But along with that, we make this claim as followers of Jesus that the way of Jesus, his call to life, living, his kingdom, is a better way in contrast to the way of the world. That is what we are claiming and what we profess as followers of Jesus. And so for week two of this series, Jesus is Better, we'll be talking about the subject of money, of money, Jesus' vision of how we are to steward our finances, how we are to view wealth, money, and possessions. As always, we'll begin with a couple of passages of scripture before we begin with a word of prayer. Join me in the reading of God's word. Reading from Matthew chapter six, starting verse 19. This is the word of the Lord. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Skipping down to verse 24. This is the words of Jesus. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else you'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Reading also from 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is the word of the Lord. My sermon title this morning is this, Jesus is better than mammon. Jesus is better than mammon. Let's look to God in prayer. Jesus, we look to you this morning as our Lord and our teacher. We ask that even in this time you will instruct us and lead us into life everlasting, into the way that's everlasting. We yield ourselves and we humble ourselves before you even now. We say, come, teach, lead, guide us. Spirit, I pray even now that you'll move upon our hearts, lead us into all truth. I thank you, God, that it's not by the death of research, nor the eloquence of men that lives are transformed, but it's only through and by your Holy Spirit. And God, we uh, even profess that this subject, this theme has been marred, carries all sorts of abuse and, and coercion and, and suspicion, and many of us struggle with even approaching this theme in your house. 
And Spirit of God, I pray for where there is wounding, misunderstanding, and offense, God, that you will bring healing to these areas of our heart. We yield to you even now, ask that you speak to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, folks, scholars will estimate that some 20% of Jesus' teachings involve money. Now, can you imagine if our church, one-fifth of the sermons you hear on Sunday morning are about money? We'll probably have a much smaller congregation, but potentially a much bigger budget. Now, Jesus wasn't doing so or teaching so often on money as a kind of strategy to raise money for his nonprofit or to fund his ministry trips. Jesus was aware of the human condition, of the human heart, that we have this tendency to consume things and to allow things to consume our heart. We have this tendency of allowing wealth, possessions, and worldly ambition to consume our hearts, to lead it to a place outside of God's kingdom, out of sync with his heart for us. And we begin to fall, as, as Paul would say, into ruin and destruction. And so he wasn't after his followers' money. He was after their hearts. Now, let's first of all profess this, that in the church, often the subject of money is broached or, or is heard with a whole lot of suspicion, right? You know, we think of several ministers with rich, with opulent, extravagant kind of lifestyles, and we think, oh my gosh, another talk on money is the pastor after my money. Is there a fundraising campaign on the horizon? But you know, even in light of all that, I can't help but be burdened and be moved and be convicted by the words of Jesus. How much he talks about money, how he warns us against the allure of wealth and possessions, and how he casts a compelling vision of what we can do with our money that is temporal, fleeting, only for this present age, and see it being sown into something that bears weight in eternity. And that's why we're talking about money this morning, not because there's some insidious motive attached to it, but because Jesus, his heart is for all of your hearts, and he wants us to steward our wealth well such that we may walk and live in the way everlasting. And so we are asking the questions today, how does the good gift of money, which we all believe is full of potential to bless, how does money turn into something that is a curse, that brings ruin and destruction into our lives? What happens when we allow the love of money spirit of mammon to take control of our hearts, our lives, our loves and longings? And how can we as a people capture Jesus' vision of money, of wealth, possessions? How can we resist the spirit of mammon and in his words, store up for ourselves treasures in heaven? Now folks, the year was 2013. It was November, I just had Thanksgiving dinner. I had a belly full of turkey which in my opinion is not a very good bird to eat because it's really dry, but everyone eats turkey. <laughs> okay, sorry. Okay, I, I have not good, had good turkey in my life. But anyway, belly full of turkey, my first year in the US, and folks, all I wanted to do, uh, well, okay, I wanted to follow Jesus, I was in ministry school, but something that I really, really wanted to do on my bucket list was to go to um, a, a store, like a Walmart, on Black Friday and just like, 
slog it out with the crowd. Like, I, I saw pictures, I've seen videos, and I'm like, I want to be there in the thick of the action. And so, you know, uh, I have a picture. Uh, this is a similar scene to, to, to what I went to uh, in the US, you know. Uh, it was a Walmart, but there were like tents outside of the Walmart. People have been like living there for the past three, four days, waiting in eager anticipation for the doors to open up for Black Friday sale to rush in and to get the best deals. And so I showed up at about 10 p.m. and I was like, I'm ready to go. I dress warm enough and I dress like, you know, casual enough so that I'd be nimble, agile, like a ninja. And so like my whole life, you know, I've always been known as a guy with a big frame, big body, and I was like, I'm made for this. And so, you know, there's this picture up, and this was a scene I went into, like, people were just like climbing on top of each other, like snatching TVs, pushing each other around, and I was like, this is what I'm made for. And so I went in, and I pushed around, I, I, I probably injured a couple of people, but I pushed around, and I went in there, and I was like, yes, Black Friday. Now, folks, let me be honest with you. I had nothing that I really needed nor wanted to buy. I just like, was like, sale, and part of my national identity as a Singaporean is to show up where there are sales. <laughs> and, so, and so I was like, okay, I'm going to go to sale. So I went in there, and I, I really had nothing that I needed, nor I was looking to buy. And so I walked in, browsed around, pushed a few people, all in the name of fun. And I left with three items. I left with an Xbox, because, you know, I needed one. I left with a blender, to which I never used. And I left with this item, which is like kind of a belt that promises that if you wear it often enough, it will slim your stomach. Uh, did not work. Now, you all may be laughing at me, but all of you do some measure of that on 10, 10, 11, 11, 12, 12, 1, 1, 2, 2, 3, 3. All of us do some measure of that, right? We go, it's like, ooh, sale, let's log on. And then we put stuff in our cart that we don't actually need. <laughs> right? We just fill it out. We buy into this lie of consumerism, this endless desire of accumulating more and more. And the great temptation of living in a culture today is to run after the same things that everyone else runs after, to get caught in this frenzy of accumulation. And in contrast with this mindset, Jesus of Nazareth would say that life is more important than material pursuits. In his words, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Johnny Rockefeller Sr., this American business magnate and philanthropist, he was widely known to be the wealthiest American of all time. At the peak of his wealth, Rockefeller had about 1% of the entire US economy. It was like filthy rich. He was once asked at the peak of his wealth, how much money is enough? And his reply was classic. He said this, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Now, doesn't that line sound familiar to all of you? Don't you feel that you would be where you want to be in life, you'll be truly happy, content, if you had just a little bit more? Just a little bit more money in your salary? Just a little bit more cushion in your saving? Just a little bit more places to see? Just a little bit more space in your house? Just a little bit more stuff? But haven't we all concluded that it's often the case that the more we get, the more we want. We get an upgrade in our house, and all of a sudden, the bigger house next door looks more appealing, and it was like, I need to get bigger. We get a, a bump up in our salary, and all of a sudden, we're like, hey, you know what? This doesn't feel all too much of me. I just need a little bit more. Contentment seems to elude us 
time and time again. We set a goal line and we say, this is how much I need, this is the kind of lifestyle I want and then I'll be content. And when we arrive, the goal line seems to get pushed further into the distance, just a little bit more. Contentment eludes us time and time again. And we ask ourselves the question, will I ever be happy? Why ever be satisfied? Why ever have enough? Now today, if we're honest with ourselves, our spending habits as Christians, our views on money, possessions, aren't too much different from that of the world. The lifestyle of most professing Christians are not substantially different from anyone else's. I think of that line from Paul when he says this, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Many of us have reversed the script to say to live is gain, to live is accumulating more and more and more, and to die is Christ. Thank God I can live as I want on the earth and then I have somewhere to go to in eternity. Now I myself will admit this to be true in my own life, having been sucked into this frenzy of endless accumulation, discontent, wanting more and more. Let's consider a couple of things that Jesus said in scripture. Mark chapter four, he says this, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus, are you saying that wealth is deceitful? That it lies, that it cons me, that it has a potential to lead me astray? That it has a suffocating effect on my heart, choking out the life of the kingdom? Or perhaps in another verse, Matthew chapter 19, Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Is Jesus saying here, wealth makes it harder for you to experience life in God? Doesn't it kind of conflict with our cultural script? We think that the more money we have, the more comforts we have, the more cushion we have, the more margin we have, we then have space to truly experience the life of God. Jesus seems to say otherwise that richness, that being wealthy, that having many, having much, having plenty, actually has a potential to choke out life in the kingdom of God and cause you to enter into ruin and destruction. Now, if you're confused and you find the words of Jesus hard to swallow, I'd like to put it to you that you're not alone, that I too struggle with the words of Jesus. I too struggle with Jesus' view on money, and many of us think that way and feel that way, living in kind of upworld, uh, upwardly mobile first world Singapore. Now, it could be uh, that you, like me, don't really buy into or believe the gospel of the kingdom all that much. And perhaps in conflict to the gospel of the kingdom, we have bought into another kind of gospel, and that is the gospel of consumerism. This gospel says this that life happiness and flourishing is found in more and more stuff. It's found in accumulation. It's found in amassing more, more experiences, more money, more possessions. I like to put it to you, more money, more problem. <laughs> Paul Mazer of Lehman Brothers at the advent of what we now know as consumer culture once said this about America. We must shift America from a needs culture to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire to want new things even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. Now this approach post-World War II with new sophistication uh, in the form of advertisement 
paved the way for what we now know to be planned obsolences. Obsolence, planned obsolence. It, in, in a nutshell, it's basically why you want a new iPhone every year. It's, you know, uh, product companies built into this product a certain kind of lifespan. At the end of lifespan, it will leave you wanting and desiring to have another one. And you know, a case in point, an example would be when Apple changed the charging ports on the iPhone, and all of a sudden you need a new iPhone. And we all buy it because Apple, man, Apple for life. Now, the French sociologist uh, John Bautrelet made the point that in the modern world, materialism has become the new dominant system of meaning. He argues that atheism hasn't replaced cultural Christianity. Shopping has. We now get our meaning in life from what we consume, from what we own, from what we possess. This is our culture. Now, I don't know whether you can relate with this, but, we, but I, on a personal level, personal level, has battled with this nagging sense of never having enough. This nagging sense that I will never have enough to be content, I will never have enough to be happy, I will never have enough to be joyful. We all know the cliche, right, that the most important things in life aren't things. And we know it to be true, and yet time and time again, we fall for modern advertising's ploy. We fall for this lie, this false promise that money and stuff can give us lasting security and satisfaction. And so what happens? We work hard in order to spend more, in order to own, own more, experience more, have more, and then we find on the other side that joy and happiness seems to elude us again. And so we work harder in order to spend more, in order to have more. And time and time again, we find this expectation without gratification, uh, that, that seems to never have a kind of gratification. How then are we supposed to be free from this endless cycle of desire? How are we to find contentment, margin, and life in the kingdom with Jesus? Now it's with that that we circle back to Matthew chapter 6, and zoning in on a particular portion of the words of Jesus. He says this in verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, I'd like you to draw your attention to this. Notice that for Jesus, he zones in and he, he puts mammon, and in some translations, money, as the primary competitor to the people of God. Jesus, in his teaching, talks a whole lot about sexuality, about pride, and other forms of idolatry, but it is mammon that he singles out as the greatest threat. Jesus here refers to money more as a personality rather than an object. There seems to be a spiritual force, uh, a false god behind money that is constantly crying out for our attention, our affection, our devotion, our worship, and our trust. Now, the challenge with talking about money and the challenge with addressing the pursuit of wealth is that the pursuit of wealth, money, can often look really noble. I want to make more money so that I can provide for my family better. I want to make more money so I can care for myself and others better. I want to make more money so that I can sow into missions. Jesus here isn't so much critiquing the use of money or you making money. He is cautioning us against this insatiable desire and pursuit that comes at the expense of your health, of your relationships, and devotion to Jesus. 
He's cautioning us against this phenomenon that we see all around the world where money displaces the seed of affection that God is supposed to have in your life. Where money displaces the role that God is to play in your life. So Jesus is essentially saying this, that God is the one worthy of pursuing, not your money. God is the one who cares for you, not your money. God is the one who provides for your needs, not your money. God is the one who is in control, not your money. Now notice that Jesus phrases this not as a command. He does not say this, that you shouldn't serve God and mammon. He says this, you cannot serve God and mammon. It is a statement on reality. You, are just, you just cannot do it. You simply cannot live in the freedom of the way of Jesus and get sucked into the overconsumption of the world all at the same time. It is simply not possible. The two are mutually exclusive. You have to pick God or mammon. Now, what is mammon? It's really easy to get detached from this term, but I'd like to spend some time passing out what mammon actually is, the heart and the spirit behind mammon. Mammon is an Aramaic word which essentially means riches. In a biblical sense, it is wealth personified as an object of worship. It refers to the idolization of money and wealth to supplant the place of God. Peter Creeve, a scholar, once said this about mammon. Mammon is the inordinate desire to possess wealth, goods, or objects of abstract value with the intention to keep it for oneself, far beyond the dictates of basic survival and comfort. It is applied to a markedly high desire for and pursuit of wealth, status, and power. Money is ubiquitously tempting because of a kind of umbrella principle. Covering everything money can buy, it also is or rather false promises to be a security blanket against change. It apes or it mimics divine self-sufficiency. He goes on to say this, that mammon is not desire as such, or even desire for temporal possessions as such, but the immoderate desire for them. For it is natural to man to desire external things as means, but mammon makes them into ends, into gods. And when the creature is made into a god, it becomes a devil. Mammon in its simplest form is a desire for abundance apart from God. It's to want what God has on one's own terms. Mammon is not just an ideal or a concept. It is spiritual. It is demonic. It's a kind of personality because it has its heart set against dependence on God. We see the spirit of mammon at work all through scripture. In the beginning when Adam and Eve were walking in the garden and God has given them all dominion, they had the whole earth, they had everything. And yet the tempter would come in and say, God is holding out on you. You need to you know, have a backup plan. You need to fend for yourself. And right there is the spirit of mammon. It's the, one of the definitive spirits of our culture. This pursuit of abundance, wealth, prestige, power outside of the creator is to derive happiness, security, satisfaction from stuff. And all of which, I'd like to put it to you, ought to come only from God. We see this struggle in mammon all through scripture. Here's one example of how mammon affects a person, culture, and ultimately results in the judgment of God. Ezekiel 28, this uh, indictment against the rule of Tyre. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the rule of Tyre, this is what the servant Lord says. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart 
the seas. While we rarely profess, I have never heard a person go like, I'm a god. But you know, many of us operate with God-like you know, impulses and tendencies, right? We are, want to be in control of our life. We want to have self-agency. We are dependent only on ourselves and what we are able to produce. Utterly disconnected from God. I got it. <laughs> and it goes on. By your wisdom and understanding, you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasures. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth, and because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. And further down, we read in, in the text the, the judgment of God upon a person who had amassed, amassed wealth and riches, became proud, and, and gave way to ruin and destruction. Now, if we'll take a step back and think about our friends and our own lives, in particularly in certain seasons, haven't we seen this played out on some level in our lives? We get sucked into this endless frenzy of accumulation, wanting more and more. We let our ambition lead our lives instead of God. And it leads us into this place where we are just full of ourselves. I'm a self-made man. I made this all happen for myself. What is God even? And leads us into ruin and destruction. Here we see the dangers of mammon because, folks, the path of mammon is ultimately a path away from God. It's to root our loves and longings in this age instead of the age that is to come. So we then land with this question, how are we supposed to resist this spirit called mammon that we see all around the world? How are we supposed to resist this impulse towards accumulating more and more and more? How are we to live and walk in the way of Jesus? Paul writes to 1 Timothy, I believe he speaks to Timothy, but he also speaks to a current cultural climate and to you and I this day. He says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul is saying here that the best thing to gain is not wealth, nor possessions, but spiritual growth, maturity, godliness, holiness. And I love that godliness is tied to contentment in this verse. Because many of us think godliness in the vein of spiritual practices, spiritual gifts, you're able to prophesy, heal the sick, all that good stuff. But Paul would say that contentment, taking joy in ordinary pleasures, being delighted where you're at, being contented and satisfied in the here and now is a form of spiritual maturity and godliness. It's something worthwhile to be pursued. Verse 7, he said this, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. And I think this is a simple yet often understated truth that we need to remind ourselves of time and time again. Your degrees, your money, your investment portfolios, your houses, your cars, all the things you own, all the things you accomplish cannot be taken from this age into the age that is to come. We came into the world with nothing and we can take nothing from the world into the coming age. Verse 9 says this, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge the people of God into ruin and destruction. I want you, first of all, notice the gravity of the language. Paul is saying here that wealth outside of God, outside of the construct of the kingdom of God, is dangerous. It is a threat to the human soul. It can numb you to God and lead you into ruin. And Paul will go on to say this, that the love of money is a root all kinds of evil. Notice here that Paul doesn't say that money in and of itself is evil. 
he says this, that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, the word love here is the word filler, which you know to be a kind of friendship kind of love, a love for other. And my kind of like pseudo-interpretation of what Paul would mean and what Paul is trying to say through this line is that Paul is describing a kind of love for money that comes at the expense of a love for other. It's, and don't we see this played out in the world, right, where people wouldn't think twice about oppressing, about abusing another in order to get ahead in life. A love for money that has come at the expense of a love for other. And he would say, following that, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Notice the language here, wandering from the faith. I'd like to put it to you that it is often not a robust, outright rejection of faith, but it is subtle. It is kind of a slippery slope. When we give in to the love of money, our carnal and fleshly impulses, it leads us down this slippery slope of spiritual decline. And what Paul would say, ruin and destruction. Many in their love for money, the pursuit of money, have wandered away from the faith. This is what happens. Paul then would after Timothy, pastoral instruction, and we skip down to verse 17. He says this, command those who are rich in this present world. Now often, I don't know about you, but when I read the word rich in the Bible, I often think of some other guy, right? And I'm never the rich person, right? And chances are, you are probably thinking the same way as well, right? There's someone always richer on the other side. And so the Bible isn't so much talking about me. He's talking about that guy. And that guy needs to read the Bible. I'm, you know, Bible is not talking about me. This is not an issue for me. But some simple statistic. Three out of seven people living in our world today live on less than $5 a day. While many of us are not rich by domestic standards, I would dare say all of us are rich by international standards. And so I would like to suggest to you and put it to you that when the Bible talks about rich and gives instruction towards those who are rich in this world, more often than not, the Bible is talking about you, all of us. And so we ought to heed the words of Scripture this day. Whoa. We ought to heed the words of scripture this day. Paul says this in verse 17, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And catch this, in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. What a stunning promise. We hear the warnings of wealth, possessions, and money, and how it corrupts, and how the potential to corrupt and lead the human heart into ruin and destruction. But here Paul offers us a promise that our wealth can be used for such a kingdom purpose to bring benefit to our souls. Paul's instruction to the rich here is this, do not be arrogant. With wealth, often comes pride, comes this sense of autonomy and independence, directly opposing this sense of dependency and gratitude towards God. Paul would say, do not put your hope in wealth, but put your hope in God. 
Do not place your security in wealth. It is fleeting. It is passing. Place your hope in God. He would say, do good and be rich in good deeds. When you have plenty, when you have a lot, be generous, be willing to share. Hoarding is, is, is a form of idolatry. Is to be, and Paul would instruct us to live free, live with open hands such that we may bless others. And he says, when you do all this, when you cease to be arrogant, when you put your hope in God, when you're generous and willing to share, you store up for yourselves treasures. You lay a firm foundation for yourself in a coming age. And Paul would clue us into this limited window of opportunity that we have on earth to take something that is temporal, fleeting, and fading and see it translated into something that bears weight in eternity, that stands forever. The kind of picture I'll give you is like banana money. We know banana money was the currency used in Singapore during the Japanese occupation. And the Japanese occupation came to an end, the British came back, and I don't know how it worked then, then, but I like to think that there was some point where you could take the banana money, which had value in a certain age, and exchange it for something that would have value in a new age, in a coming age, right? Banana money was useful for that two years, but after that, right, it was essentially worthless. And potentially there was a point in time where you could take this soon-to-be-worthless money and see it exchanged with something that actually had value. And that's what we are to think and view, our, the lens we are to view our money, our possessions in this life. We are to view it as something that has value, has worth in this age. But there's coming an age where these things would be worthless. We, take, we came to the world with nothing and we take nothing out of it. But Paul gives us this window of opportunity and he says, you can take these things through generosity, through giving into the kingdom, through serving others, and you can see these things translate into something that bears weight, that holds value in eternity. You probably saw this viral article of how a grandma in Malaysia lost some 300,000 ringgit after it was destroyed by pests. She kept it in a Milo tin and everything was destroyed. This goes to show that our money is fleeting, it's fading, it doesn't stand forever. Now folks, our money, whether you hold it in fiat currency or Bitcoin or NFTs, our money will one day fade away. But what we choose to do with it in this life has the potential to hold value and weight in eternity. Generosity, radical generosity, only makes sense in light of eternity. And our generosity has to be informed by our eschatology. There's coming an age where what we do with our wealth, possessions, our money, this life, there's coming an age where we'll see them come to fruit. The writer of Hebrews will give us this instruction, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Now folks, people who only consider this life would have a scarcity view of their money. They will think my limited resources must be spent in my limited lifetime. I must get the best out of life. But scriptures tells us the opposite. God has unlimited riches in Christ Jesus and we have an eternal inheritance for us in heaven. So this frees us to be incredibly generous in our life with what we 
have. Now, I'm bringing this thing to a landing shortly. Now, none of us, I'd like to put it to you, would have an issue with generosity. Generosity is seen, kind of seen as a noble virtue in our culture today. We think of a person who's generous as a person who's really kind and, and very free, and we, we think that, wow, that is such a noble pursuit. That is virtuous. However, I'd like to put it to you that our culture has forms, has expressions of generosity that are not rooted in biblical self-giving love. For example, we have guilt-driven generosity, which says that how much money can I throw to this need in order to feel better about myself and in order to feel like I can spend the rest of my money in peace. Guilt-driven generosity. We have virtue-signaling generosity. Oh my gosh, folks, look at how much money I give to X and X. Look at how kind and how awesome I am. Virtue-signaling generosity. There's also returns-based generosity. Look at how much money I give. How much money I put into this person, how much money I put into the church, I should get much more in return. Didn't God say that I should? Now, over the course of my life, there are times where I've given generously, financially generously, to the church or to people, and God is true to his word, and, and he's blessed me, and I've experienced an increase in finances. But there's also been times in my life where I've given generously, sacrificially, and I've experienced nothing on the other side. I'd like to put it to you that generous, generosity is not about controlling God's hand. It's about living free from attachments. Generosity is not about manipulation. It's about maturity. So, in light of that, guilt-driven generosity, virtue-signaling generosity, returns-based generosity, we are then called as a people of God to express a kingdom generosity, a generosity rooted in self sacrificial love for the other. And I think about the early church in that vein. Many of us, when we read the book of Acts, particularly, you know, chapters 2 and chapters 4, we look at the early church and man, man, you know, they are like more house church, you know, they are like so communal and all that kind of stuff and like maybe you should do a different mode of church. Or I'm, I'm all about that, but let us examine too the fruit of the early church. They were promiscuously generous. They gave to all who had need. This was the early church. They were marked with the fruit of self-giving, self-sacrificial love. Tim Keller would say this, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it. In this way, the pagan society was stingy with his money and promiscuous with his body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. Now folks, may we be a people whose hearts are not rooted in the systems of our world, the spirit of mammon, such that we may display a provocative generosity in our world today. Now I'd like to close off with four modes of generosity that you can consider implementing in your life. To walk a step closer towards this provocative generosity, to resist the spirit of mammon. Here are four kinds of generosity. First off, schedule generosity. We often say, often say it here that structure communicates value. And a kind of scheduled generosity is putting in place a plan, a form of structure toward giving. It could be the tithe or regularly giving towards a cause or a person. Another kind of generosity, spontaneous generosity. This will be responding to a need or giving outside of your scheduled giving. One of the things that Amy and I have uh, in practice is that we always carry cash on our person 
such that you know, when we see a person in need on the streets and, and or a friend in need, we are able to give cash to a person. And it involves making plans and preparations such that you have the margin to give. There's also sacrificial generosity. We see that in the book of Acts, the early church, it is to give outside of one's comforts. Christian giving ought to be marked by generosity and sacrifice. And it's easy to be generous when we have plenty, hard to be sacrificial when we have plenty. And the last kind of generosity is my favorite, secret generosity. Secret generosity. Now in my school days, there were plenty of need around me. You know, we were in a ministry school. Many of people uh, you know, spend all their money to get to where we're at. And I had the blessing of having a bit more than most. And I would make it a point to give to uh, any of my friends or anyone I knew who had need. And one of the things that God placed my heart to do was to do so in secret. And there was one occasion where we were about to start school and I felt compelled to give to a particular friend. And so I put a sizable sum of money to me then into an envelope and I put it into the back of that friend. And I put it in the bag and I stand at the back of the hall and just observing that friend. And so before class started, he rummaged through his bag and he found this envelope and he opened it up and it was all cash. And he then, you know, looked around and was like, oh my gosh, I think this is for me. And then he started exclaiming and started saying, praise Jesus, hallelujah. Thank you God for this provision. Thank you God for what you've brought to me. Now, I was standing in the back of the hall and I had my arms crossed because I'm like, no, Jesus didn't put the money in there. I did. I, I put the money in there. And, and, and I felt so indignant. I was like, man, I, I sacrifice, I give generously, and yet this guy doesn't know that it's me. He should know it's me. I should be told that I'm kind, gentle, and generous, and all around good and awesome person. He didn't know. But you know, then I caught myself in that moment, and I realized here I was, desiring the worship that I was giving to God. Here I was longing and desiring for recognition, for glory in some sense. And I think giving in secret exposes all these secret things in our heart. It's actually good for us. Secret, generosity. Now, as I close, I don't think the vision of Jesus for all of our lives is to sell everything and live in total poverty. There is nothing inherently virtuous about poverty, and the inverse is also true. What I'm saying here is that perhaps God wants to speak to all of you. Perhaps you pay your tithe, you give 10% to the church or something else. Perhaps God wants to speak to the remaining 90%. Perhaps God wants to speak to you about how you utilize your resource you know, in, in advancing his kingdom, in resisting the spirit of mammon. And the consideration we ought to entertain this day is this. When we are blessed, when we have more, we increase, experience increase that comes from the Lord. What we consider increasing our standard of loving as opposed to our standard of living. Close off your final quote. Ken Hughes says this, every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. Perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification of money. And I love that. With every act of generosity, I declare, my allegiance is not rooted in the systems of this world. I do not belong to the spirit of mammon. I resist it. I do not buy into this endless frenzy of accumulation. I do not buy into consumer culture that says I'll be satisfied. If I have more, I belong to Jesus. With my money, I declare that this is worship.
Beautiful. <laughs> now, even as I conclude this talk on money, I can't help but think of that image of Mary, you know, she broke that alabaster jar at the feet of Jesus. That extravagant act of worship, that costly sacrifice. I can't help but contrast that scene with whatever has been happening here for the last 45 minutes. You know, Mary at that point, I don't think experienced a kind of expository walkthrough of certain biblical texts. Nor was she taken through a pros and cons list, nor was she convinced that the spirit of mammon is there to bring her to ruin and destruction. But what happened to Mary? She saw Jesus, his surpassing worth, and then instinctively she knew that this cause that she was about to pay made complete sense. And she, when she was confronted with the worth, the beauty of glo- and glory of Jesus, then every cost, no matter how costly, makes utter and complete sense. And the truth is, if we're still mag- measuring the magnitude of our offering, then we have not seen the magnitude of Christ's worth, His surpassing worth. And so my prayer for all of us as we close this day is not so much, God, help me to, to be generous. God, help me to live with open hands and be free of my money. God, help me to resist the spirit of mammon. I think there's a place for prayer like that, but I've been moving my heart to pray for us this day that God would give us the spirit of revelation that our eyes may truly see, that we will see rightly, that we will see Christ in His surpassing worth, that we would, our eyes will be open to the lesser temporal things to which we have count worthier than Him, and that God will give us a grace to turn away from these things and to set our hearts on what is truly eternal. We are but sojourners, pilgrims. We are passing through this world. So God, we ask, help us set our hearts on what is truly eternal, on what will truly stand forever. Help us not to be attached to temporal lesser things. Help us to turn away from endless accumulation, the pursuit of wealth that has no meaning in and of itself. Help us to live for your kingdom, almighty God. Give us the grace. Give us mercy even this day as we repent, as we turn away. Help us to live generously in view of your surpassing worth and glory and grace. Give us Jesus. Give us Jesus. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. That's the cry of our heart, our response this afternoon.